Folks, I want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we're broadcasting from the top of the Habern Building in Louisville, Kentucky. This is WFMP-LP Louisville. That's 106.5 FM on your radio dial. And if you want to find out a little bit more about our station, you can go to forwardradio.org. So, folks, we have uh, Alan Maiman here today. Uh, Welcome, Alan. Great to be with you, K.A. Thanks for having me. Alan, once upon a time, worked for the Carrier Journal and covered the uh, eastern Kentucky area of our state for the Carrier Journal and has written many, many articles about uh, eastern Kentucky. Kentucky for the Carrier Journal, and uh, uh, as a result of that, was able to write a new book, Twilight and Hazard. Twilight and Hazard. So, uh, so uh, Alan, uh, and we will talk about the book, but tell us about how you got to the Carrier Journal, how you got to Eastern Kentucky. How did all that happen? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of an interesting backstory. I was living in Berlin, Germany uh, at the time that uh, I, I took the job in Kentucky. And the reason that I took the hazard job was uh, here I was living in a, in a foreign country, working as a journalist. And I thought, you know what, I'd like to come back to the United States. I'd like to come back home. But, but for me at that point in my life, home was sort of an abstract concept. I didn't necessarily want to return to a place I knew well, like Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. I thought that it would be much more challenging for me to go to a place and to continue my journalism career in a place that I had no familiarity with, no prior knowledge of, that I could, that I could really uh, cover in a way that would challenge me as much as I was challenged covering stories in Europe. And that's how I ended up in, in Hazard. And, and I guess the stars aligned because when I took the job, my editor at the time told me that he wanted me to cover Eastern Kentucky as if I were a foreign correspondent, which uh, we can get back to later. But um, at the time, I thought, okay, that sounds about right. But the more time I spent there, I came around to the idea that that Hazard and the rest of Eastern Kentucky is not a foreign place at all. In fact, the forces that play there are among the most American uh, anywhere. So you spent some years in uh, Eastern Kentucky, and and just to give people a, a picture of uh, Kentucky, uh, Kentucky is sort of, uh, 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 well, let's say it was, uh, it's, uh, it's wider. Uh, if you look at it on a map, it's sort of it's wide, and and, and the thickest part of it is in the uh, the eastern Kentucky, and that's where sort of the Appalachian Mountains run through. And Harlan uh, Hazard, uh, sort of in the southeastern part of the state, is that correct? And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important thing to bring up because uh, the the eastern Kentucky is more of a term of art than anything. What is eastern Kentucky? Um, I'll say this, that in my five years uh, with the Courier-Journal, 
my main focus was on southeastern Kentucky, uh, the, the, the counties and the places that you just mentioned, the so-called core coal counties uh, of Kentucky, at least in the eastern part of the state. But Kentucky is a interesting state in that it has 120 counties, roughly 30 to 40 of which are considered eastern Kentucky. Okay. And so when you uh, uh, first set foot in eastern Kentucky, culturally, economically, politically, what did you see? What did you find? It was different. Uh, I arrived two days before Christmas uh, in the year 2000. And and to take people back uh, to that time, that was when... Remember the, the counting of hanging chads in Florida was, was deciding the, the presidential election that year. I arrived in Hazard right around the time uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately um, gave the election to George W. Bush. So I got there at a time that was a, a pivotal time in the country politically um, and also personally. I mean, this was these were among the shortest and coldest days of the year, and here I was plopped down in Hazard, Kentucky, and with the assignment to cover you know 20 or 30 counties. So it was, um, it, was, it was the challenge that, that I expected it to be. Um, the, one of the first things I noticed was that I talked differently than, than many people there, and, they, and, and many people were not shy about pointing that out. Um, I was told time and again in my first month there that I talked proper, and I thought that was very interesting. That, that um, I was, uh, It was unusual enough for somebody like myself to be there that it was noted time and again and that was, that was very interesting to me. I, I, I realized, wow, this is a place where there hasn't been many people, there haven't been many people from the outside who have come in here. And, and, and I knew at that point that, that I had my work cut out for me because telling the stories of, of these people in these places um, was, was really imperative at that time. I, I arrived in Eastern Kentucky a couple of weeks before the announcement of OxyFest 2001, which was the big announcement that there was this new uh, prescription drug that was killing thousands of people called OxyContin. So I was there really when the OxyContin epidemic exploded. I was there when some really serious environmental accidents happened um, stemming from, from the mining of coal. Uh, so the stories started, when they started coming, they started coming pretty fast and pretty furiously. And, and it really kept me on my toes and challenged me. So when you were in eastern Kentucky, was coal still, uh, uh, the coal economy still functioning? Yes. In fact, when I arrived, you could say that coal was experiencing a mini boom. Another of those mini booms that over the course of 100 years has helped sustain the industry. Um, and so I'm glad you bring that up because that, was, that, was, that meant that the conversations that we're hearing today, because again, my book Twilight and Hazard is really about today. The conversations that are happening today about diversifying the economy and transitioning beyond a coal economy weren't really taking place 15 or 20 years ago when they needed to be happening. There just wasn't an urgency back then to, to, to figuring out what is Eastern Kentucky going to look like when King Cole doesn't come back, which certainly looks like it's the case now. And so uh, when you have an area where a lot of people work with their back and their hands and a lot of people have uh, 
don't have good medical care, you have a lot of aches and pains, you have a lot of injuries. And for a lot of people who work with their backs and their hands, a painkiller that enables people to go to work is almost a godsend. I mean, I've had people tell me that people who are, you know, 40 and 50 years old and can barely walk, you know, got on the oxy and they were jumping around like white-tailed deer. But uh, there's a downside to that as well. So tell us about the uh, sort of the oxy uh, uh, problems uh, in, uh, in eastern K- Kentucky. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And the pharmaceutical companies, most notably Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, uh, preyed upon that uh, by heavily marketing their painkillers to doctors in eastern Kentucky who prescribed them at first to people who were legitimately in pain, uh, to people who needed a powerful painkiller, maybe not a painkiller as powerful as OxyContin, Next thing you know, the drug becomes diverted and it ends up on the street. And then we get into the issue of institutional neglect. This problem starts snowballing. There are no treatment facilities really to speak of in the region to help people who have become hooked on the drug. The government response is slow. The corporate response is certainly slow. And next thing you know, you have a real American tragedy on your hands. So, Alan, are you saying that Oxy first started off as a godsend to people who had aches and pains from doing hard manual labor and were injured, and then it became sort of a bomb for social problems. Uh, that is, people were suffering through other types of right. psychological distress because of things that were going on or not going on in their community, and the Oxycontin became a, a, a bomb for Uh, other issues in society. Right. Oxycontin was meant for chronic pain sufferers, for people in the the final throes of cancer, not for people experiencing a toothache. What happened was the pharmaceutical companies got doctors to think, well, okay, well, if somebody comes in and and says they have a toothache, well, why don't I throw, throw some Oxycontin their way? which was, was really a, a, a huge mistake. The more OxyContin that was legitimately descri- uh, prescribed um, meant the more OxyContin that, that risked ending up on the street. Uh, and it's also worth that OxyContin was um, taken by, by people who took it illegally, didn't take it as, uh, as in pill form. They, they, they crushed it up and either snorted it or injected it into their veins, which bypassed the time release mechanism that the drug was supposed to have. And so in Appalachia, when Oxy got caught on, I think it was hard for people to sort of understand how sort of prototypical small-town America uh, became sort of filled with uh, addicted people because, you know, prototypical small-town America, so, some of the young people don't get this reference, but, uh, you know, kind of Mayberry, USA. And uh, uh, and some of the younger people never, have never seen the Andy, Andy Griffith show, but uh, 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 for those of you who have it, that's a prototypical small town that never existed but was uh, uh, featured in a, a very popular television show, uh, Young People. But... Uh, and so, uh, hey, uh, uh, Aunt B is on dope. So, uh, 
And so how do you think the world or the country was able to react to the, the fact that the prototypical small-town America, which was supposed to be the reservoir of American values, was sort of caught up in this sort of uh, addiction problem? Well, it's, again, part of the American tragedy of this whole story is that I don't believe that the, that the institutional response to the problem became, uh, got the urgency it needed until the problem came to the suburbs. As long as the problem was in rural Maine, fishing villages, and in rural eastern Kentucky, which was, oh, that, you know, in many people's minds, oh, that's that place that's just so poor. That's, you know, we're not like that. Then the problem started coming to the suburbs. And suddenly it was taken more seriously. And that's when all the state's attorney generals started suing uh, the drug manufacturers for uh, 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 for uh, millions upon millions. So across the board, the, suddenly you saw an institutional response that you did not had not seen until it came to the suburbs, and that yes, that manifested itself in lawsuits and any any number of other governmental responses. Yes, and a lot of state legislatures were discussing. Uh, addiction as a health problem and not a character issue where in when drug problems were confined to uh, you know urban areas populated by black and brown it was described as a character issue a fault people had faulty morals and and when it was uh, white suburbanites it became a health issue Instead of just that, that is precisely correct, and I'll, I'll refer to a, a, the a, a, I believe it was a DEA report from 2001, which was the peak of OxyContin, where um, OxyContin was was lumped in with club drugs as um, a very uh, secondary concern. The number one concern for drug enforcement agents in Eastern Kentucky in that year, marijuana. So, um, and so you spend some years in eastern Kentucky uh, working for the legendary Courier Journal. Um, uh, and then um, it comes time to write the book, Twilight in Hazard. So, what motivated you to write the book? What inspired I you? I married a woman from Harlan County, so let's start with that. And that, that I maintained my connection to Eastern Kentucky in the, uh, after I left. So I've been sort of ruminating over this for the, for the past uh, really 15 years, just thinking about how the stories I covered earlier this century have affected the here and now uh, in terms of things like income inequality and generational poverty. And it's just gotten me to think a lot about the idea of if you want to fix a problem, you have to attack its systemic and structural roots. And I really applaud the efforts of some Eastern Kentuckians, uh, civic officials and nonprofits who are working very hard to get Eastern Kentuckians in a position where they can lead better lives. But I, I just look at some of the systemic and structural roots of the problems there and, and believe that, that we need to have a reckoning with those. So, yes. Uh, and so when folks uh, 
uh, looking at the, the key issues that you discuss in your book, what is what do you want people to take away uh, after they read your book the first time? Some first pe- and foremost, for people who aren't familiar with the region, who may have very broad stereotypes of the region, I want people to understand that this is a region that isn't irredeemable and that these aren't people who just can't get their act together, but rather this is an area that has, over the past 120 years, ever since the first team of coal was mined in eastern Kentucky, have sort of just been... Um, left behind, um, and now that the dominant industry of coal is seemingly on its way out with no boom around the corner, um, it's, a, it's, it's an urgent and, and in some ways exciting time for the region to, to sort of reinvent itself, to figure out a way to go beyond coal and to harness the, the can-do spirit that does exist in the area. So I really would like this book to give people a three-dimensional view of a place that I think um, they often think about more in, in a stereotypical fashion. That's that's so important. Uh, just as a note, uh, uh, some of the counties in Kentucky that where the most coal has been extracted and the most wealth was created from coal, those are the poorest counties uh, in the state and some of the poorest counties in the country. Uh, whereas, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, the 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 royal family there decided to 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 sort of spread the oil money around to sort of pacify the people. And a lot of the oil sheiks, uh, that's what they do. Uh, they spread the money around to uh, 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 you know pacify the people and make sure that you know uh, everybody has. Uh, a Land Rover and, a, and an air-conditioned house, house to live in. But the money in eastern Kentucky, the way extraction was done, uh, people were exploited, and the, and the money, the wealth went uh, to shareholders and other places. So, uh, so it's just sort of a phenomenon of how extraction, uh, economies based on extraction, sometimes... Uh, uh, benefit uh, uh, less or more people depending on how it's done so uh, yeah that's absolutely right so and so um, and so now uh, you're working for a new nonprofit or relatively new called Centurion tell us about that sure uh, Centurion has actually been around for close to 40 years oh We're wow the oldest or, yeah, it was started by a gentleman named Jim McCluskey in the early 80s. Uh, it w- it's the oldest innocence organization in the country. Uh, many of your listeners are probably familiar with the New York Innocence Project and the Innocence Project network across the country. Centurion is independent of that. We, we have a good relationship with the innocence projects across the country, but we're, we're independent and the oldest innocence organization in the country. We're, we're coming up on... Um, for having freed 70, 7-0 wrongfully convicted people um, during the course of, of, of Centurion's existence. And my work for Centurion, um, in, in some ways, informed the writing of Twilight and Hazard in terms of it give, giving me a glimpse into rural poverty versus urban poverty, the urban-rural divide, 
Um, let, and let me say that my late father-in-law from Harlan County, who grew up in a holler deep, deep in, in Harlan County, even he understood that there, the concept of white privilege. So I think it's really important when we're talking about the differences between rural poverty and urban poverty to acknowledge that poor white Appalachians do not face the same structural and systemic challenges that black and brown Americans do. There just isn't the same systemic racism at play. <clears throat> However, if you want to talk about a larger American caste system and about how class in America is still very much a real thing, then the, the counties of southeastern Kentucky are a great place to look. So my work for Centurion, which uh, takes me to places like St. Louis, Chicago, Philadelphia, New Orleans, has really broadened my view of this country as a whole, and, and, it's, and quite frankly has made me very concerned about this country as a whole, as I see places in urban America and rural, rural America that have been left behind, and I see a country really not willing to confront the things that need to be confronted in order to change things. So uh, you look at the criminal justice system, uh, uh, and then we've had cases here in Louisville where we had a longtime police officer who was uh, convicted of uh, essentially lying people into jail, uh, coercing uh, uh, false testimony. And when it was time uh, for him to pay the price for what he did, uh, he was going to be let off with no jail time, and the judge objected to that. And finally, they agreed to a year, uh, and then he started to serve his time, and his his year turned into home incarceration. So it's very difficult to uh, to, to prosecute and punish a police officer uh, for uh, falsely accusing and uh, uh producing false testimony and uh, coercing people into guilty pleas. It's very difficult to uh, punish a police officer in this country for doing that sort of thing. Uh, so in your opinion, what is the, uh, the, the, the most common cause of uh, uh, the falsely accused going to jail in this country? And to interview witnesses and, to, and then conclude, wait a second, this 
we're not letting this case even get past our screening process. There's problems here. Too often those cases just fly through the system, and next thing you know, you have an innocent person sitting in prison for many years. Yes, uh, there was a movie uh, that came out, uh, I think it was right before the pandemic, uh, about Brian Banks, uh, who was... uh, 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 sort of a very talented high school football player who went to jail for rape, and not only did no rape occur, no sexual contact occurred, and uh, finally was a type of innocence project out in California. Years later, uh, uh, was able to uh, get him out of out of jail, and uh, his attorney uh, uh, that his mother uh, essentially put up the house for. Uh, agreed to a plea bargain, told him, oh, well, you just plead guilty and you won't go to jail and end up spending, I think it was eight or nine years or something like like, like that in jail. Uh, now, uh, of course, Banks was able to get out and, uh, of course, his dream was to play pro football, so he was able to go to college. And I, th- I think the Atlanta Hawks let him play like uh, – uh, three or four preseason games, so he could, say, uh, you know. But uh, his old coach, I think it was Lance Kiffin, said, "Well, he had been out for so long, and his his body and just wasn't uh, uh, developed." It. Uh, but you know, so he was able to, after many years, sort of get out and put a life together. But so many innocent people uh, aren't able to do that, uh, uh, and so. So it's really a shame uh, what's, what so many people have to go through and so many families have to suffer. And, and, uh, and I hate to say it, so many attorneys, uh, defense attorneys who, who take people's money and really just don't produce at all. I mean, uh, it's just... Right. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the wrongful conviction of an innocent person is a, is a, is a total collapse of the criminal justice system. Absolutely, police and prosecutors play a role in that, but sometimes you have, uh, not sometimes, a lot of times, you have defense attorneys who aren't doing their jobs, who are performing incompetently, uh, and, and it's just a, it just all adds up, and, and the sum effect is you have a person who throughout the process thinks, I am innocent, the truth will come out, and then they're sitting in a courtroom one day and they hear the guilty verdict, and off, and off they go to prison, and, and it's very difficult to undo a, a conviction once it's happened. That's why at Centurion we, we spend many years, at, we have to spend many years on every case in order to navigate a, a, a criminal justice system that, um, that put the person away in the first place and doesn't want to admit that it got something wrong. And so looking back, uh, Brian Banks was freed by uh, the same judge who who put him in jail in the first place uh, and it's just amazing to me when uh, you know not only did not a rape occurred but there was no sexual contact nothing uh, so yeah I'm, I'm glad that movies like um, the, the Brian Banks story and Just Mercy have, have really brought a lot of attention um, to this problem because it, it is a it is a huge problem and, 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 it's, and it's not in any one place uh, and it requires a, uh, it really requires a holistic overhaul of the criminal justice system because it's really, as I said, a failure. It's a failure of the system every step of the way when somebody, an innocent person, is, is put in prison. So, folks, we're here talking with, uh, with, with uh, uh, Alan Maiman, and uh, 
He's got a new book out, Twilight in Hazard. Uh, Alan uh, worked for quite a few years for the Courier Journal uh, and was the Eastern Kentucky reporter. And uh, now he works for Centurion, which is uh, an organization dedicated to uh, getting the innocent out of prison. Uh, So, Alan, uh, uh, we've got about... uh, uh, not a minute, but uh, any last word, uh, last few words. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll try to uh, make them count. I, what I see uh, a need for in this country is a total reimagining of how we think about things. Uh, uh, the Breonna Taylor tragedy, for example, if we don't learn from tragedies, like that one and attack the social problems that cause them, then we'll see the same tragedies happen again. So we need to be serious about change and reform, not just talk about it. And I would apply those same lessons to rural America and Eastern Kentucky in particular. There are great opportunities there. Alan, we got to wrap it up. Alan, uh, thank you so much for being here with us today.